Our verses this morning are taken from two chapters in Matthew. One is from chapter 5, and that's starting at verse 1. And the next, if you're following, is um, from Matthew 7, starting at verse 28. Our black pew Bibles are in the uh, book over by the, the bookcase over by the door. And that, <clears throat> I didn't get the page number, I'm sorry. Does anyone have the page number for that? 809? 809, thank you. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And when Jesus, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. If this is your first time with us, we uh, thank you for coming, and you're lucky. You get to hear the entire sermon series that we've been doing for the last couple of months in one sermon. We are finishing it out today. Somehow you planned it just perfectly. My name is Ryan Phelps. I serve here as lead pastor. And before we go to God's word, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We are grateful to you for life. God, as we pray, I am reminded of all the good things that you have done to us. But as I'm reminded of the good that you have done to us, I also know that there is lots of tragedy going on in the world. There are men and women meeting this morning. There are churches gathering together after the tragedies that have happened in Baton Rouge, in Minnesota, in Dallas. God, our thoughts are with them. Our prayers are with them. There are children waking up this morning without fathers. There are wives waking up without husbands. And God, we also know that there is much tension in this land. There is still so much heartache, confusion, people talking past each other, misunderstanding. So even as we would go to your word, we are reminded that you are sovereign over all things, and we pray. We pray that you would act, that you would be merciful to we, your people, and that you would see racial lines, that you would see racial, racial reconciliation happen. It will not happen overnight, but we pray that it would happen. And God, we pray for the church, the church universal, that we would lead here, that we would be microcosms of grace and mercy and forgiveness. God, now be with us. We are finishing out this greatest of sermons. You have given it to us by your grace and wisdom and mercy. We are so thankful. But don't leave us now. Be with us a few more verses, a few more minutes, that we may see you. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, he is here and he is working. Amen. Amen. So I had Connie read... The beginning and the end of this greatest of all sermons. The Sermon on the Mount from Jesus Christ. That verse, first verse says something vitally important. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Stop there. It was he. He is Jesus. So you can, you can picture the scene that Jesus sees the crowds and, 
And you know that Jesus is pretty popular at this point. Very, very popular. He had loads of people following him around, not just the disciples. There were crowds following him. They were waiting to see what he would do next. Now, why does he preach the sermon? Well, what he doesn't do is he doesn't go off by himself, pray, come up with a plan, and then come out and go up on the mountain. He doesn't do that. He doesn't huddle up with, with his disciples and say, okay, what do we do next? He doesn't do that. It says that he saw the crowds and he went up onto the mountain. Now you can imagine how Matthew is, is doing this. He's standing there and he's watching Jesus every move. You could not take your eyes off of the guy. Not just because he was going to try to recount this later, but because he was captivated. What is Jesus going to do next? It's kind of like at the end of an intense playoff baseball game. You want to see every swing of the bat. Matthew does not want to miss anything, and so he is watching Jesus. Jesus is at the base of the hill, that mountain, and then Matthew sees him look. We don't know how long. It just says that he saw the crowds, but it was enough for Matthew to record that. And I can only imagine what that looks like because I don't think it was just an ordinary look. I think Jesus looked out and Matthew could see, he could almost sense the penetrating gaze of Jesus Christ, seeing not just their exteriors, but seeing down to their hearts, their conditions, their state could see their fear, their sadness. He could sense their problems, their emotional, intellectual, spiritual baggage. He saw them. He saw them down to their cores, and he said to himself, now is the time. Now is the time to open up the gates, to show them the good news. And the good news is that the kingdom is coming, and it is better than anything they had ever seen or known before. And it's important to begin there, because now the tables are turned on us this morning. Our eyes are now focused on him. He has stopped speaking. At the end of the sermon, he has stopped. He stopped teaching. No more words. But our eyes are on him. What do we see? What do we make of this man? What do we make of his teaching, his truth, his very life? That's what we're going to finish up this morning with this morning. Three points. One, the truth is out there. Two, the truth is astonishing. And three, the truth is him. The truth is him. One, the truth is out there. The truth is out there. Matthew 5, sorry, Matthew 7, 28, reads this way. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now, I just want to focus on that first part. Leave the astonished part there for a second. We're just going to focus on the first part. When he had finished these sayings. Now, listen, this is not all that Jesus would say. It's not saying, and this was it. That was all that he did. That was all that he had to say. No, we know that he said a lot more. John, it was probably somewhat hyperbolic, later would say that if you wrote down everything that Jesus ever did or said, the whole world could not contain it. So, so the sermon was not everything he said. But I think that you could say that it was at the center of his life, of his teaching, of his 
truth. It's almost as though he's saying when he finishes, okay, here you go. Here it is. Here is what you need to understand me, my father, the mission that I am on, and what king, the kingdom looks like, what kingdom life looks like. Here is the center of my life, my truth. In other words, the truth is out there. Remember that show, The X-Files? I loved that show as a kid. It was about aliens and governments and conspiracies and Fox Mulder, the FBI agent. He believed that the truth was out there. If he could just, just search long enough and hard enough, he would find it. He would uncover all of it. The truth was out there. With Jesus, it was a little bit different. The truth was out there, but he did not have to uncover it. You did not have to uncover it. You did not have to look hard to find it. He said it. He spoke it. Here was the kingdom, the gospel. Here was his life. And the question to everyone before him, that his disciples, to the crowds, to even the Pharisees who were standing there listening, will you believe? Will you believe? And by believe, I don't just mean believe the facts, believe that he spoke the words, but buy into it. Buy into it. Take his truth and make it ours. Take what he said and let it guide us. Take what he said, his truth, and see everything through it like a lens. What he said, he's saying, he's saying, I've finished my teaching and now you must believe it. It must be confronted, assessed, discerned, and adopted. Do we? Do we? Listen, I think it's true, no matter where you are on the spectrum from non-believer to long-time believer, we often ignore what he has to say. We do this intellectually. We do it emotionally. We keep keep him at a distance. We stay away from his words, from his teachings. We do not want to appropriate everything he has to say to our lives. And really what we're saying is we're, we're not really listening to him. We're partially listening, but not really. Now, this is how I listen to pop songs, anything popular. I am notoriously bad at hearing lyrics in songs, but that does not stop me from singing along with them. I belt them out. And every time my wife goes, can't you hear what they're saying? No, and I don't care. We often sing along with the Sermon on the Mount, don't we? But we don't always know what it is saying. We can't really hear his voice to us. But let me just say that that will not do. That will not work here. Keeping him at a distance intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, it can't work forever. You, you have to approach his truth as truth, as something that is true or not. This is the same reason why you should never ignore a doctor if she came to you and said you had cancer. You can't ignore Jesus' truth just like you can't ignore a doctor coming to you and saying you could die. You could die if you do not do these things. Listen, Jesus is not just offering 10 steps to a better you. No, he is giving a warning and also a way out. 
very possible that Steve Jobs would have survived had he just listened to his doctors when they first gave him his diagnosis. Steve Jobs was notorious for distrusting everyone except himself, if you've read his biography. Fascinating guy, very stubborn guy. And he was also a a firm believer in natural medicines. He was so firmly entrenched in this belief that natural medicines worked that he believed he did not need to wear deodorant. And so he would walk into meetings smelling terrible. But in his mind, he believed that whatever he was doing, whatever diet he was on, and usually, it was usually carrots. He would eat a lot of carrots. He literally turned a little orange. He believed in his mind that he didn't stink. He didn't have a problem. And that was fine. It was just B.O. But when he was diagnosed with cancer, he ignored his doctor's recommendations. Instead, he went on one of his infamous fasts, extreme diets, and he waited nine months. Think of that, nine months before he accepted any of the traditional medical care. The Sermon on the Mount is really two things when you stand back and look at it. It is a warning. It is a warning that this life is not really the way it is supposed to be. This kingdom that we have created for ourselves is not how God intended it, and it cannot remain here forever. But it is also a vision that the new kingdom is coming. It is a vision of what could be if we would only accept his treatment. The Sermon on the Mount is not simply the diagnosis of what has gone wrong. It is a vision of what could go right, what will be right If they, and now we, would heed his warning, follow his teaching, and lean on him. Friends, there is no ignoring this truth. It is out there. Point two this morning. The truth is astonishing. The truth is astonishing. Okay, all of Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So you can picture the scene again in your mind. I love to do this. Crowds are sitting there, maybe some standing, and they're listening. And they probably were, probably were better listeners than we are today. They didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. They didn't have all the things that are distracting us. How they got their information was by listening to people. They didn't even really read. They listened to people. And so they really knew how to listen and to bring in whatever someone was saying to them. They were listening Intently. They were paying excellent attention. And then he finishes. And they were blown away. What they heard Jesus say probably, in a sense, took their breath away. Well, what's the word they used? What's the word Matthew used? They were astonished. Astonished. I love that word. And it's such an important word because it is multi layered. It doesn't just mean one thing. Here, I'm going to give you the Greek word because it's a cool Greek word. Explosanto. Isn't that awesome? Astonished is explosanto in the Greek. One of the best dictionaries for the Greek says that explosanto means to be so amazed as to be practically overwhelmed. So this same word can be used to describe something like panic or fear, but they weren't really exactly afraid here, but right on the edge. What Jesus said was so catastrophically and radically different 
than anything they'd ever heard, and they did not know how to respond. They were dumbfounded, flabbergasted. What Jesus said astonished them. Why? Again, this is a multi-layered word, multifaceted. It covers, I think, a range of things, a range of emotions, joy, fear, hope, curiosity. In other words, they wouldn't have responded to Jesus' teaching monolithically. They wouldn't have responded in just one way. Oh, that makes me really happy. Oh, that really makes me angry. Oh, that really scares me. No, they would have been many, many things. Whenever you hear an athlete after the big game, they've just won it, the Super Bowl or the NBA championship, the reporter runs up to them and they shove a microphone in their mouth and they go, how do you feel? And almost always they say, I don't know. It really hasn't sunk in yet. Say a reporter runs up to a, a, a crowd, someone in the crowd, a disciple, and they say, so what do you think? What do you think about what he had to say? How do you feel after hearing that? I think they would have said, I don't know. What he just said was so overwhelming, so astonishing, so explosanto, that it hasn't really sunk in yet. And so I think that we can say at the very least that Jesus did not just hit their exteriors, but he hit their hearts. Maya Angelou, the poet, since since passed away, she once wrote this. The idea in poetry is to write it so that people hear it and it slides through the brain and goes straight to the heart. I love that. Jesus didn't write, but his words went straight through their brains and into their hearts. Let's just unpack that a little bit. I think on the one hand, they would have been warmed. I think they would have been warmed, made to feel well by his teaching. They would have heard what he had to say. They would have heard what he had to say and and said, you know what, I like that. I, I like that vision. This is making me feel hopeful. Even if this isn't true, I want it to be true. A few days after the two men in Falcon Heights and then Baton Rouge were killed, a man named Lin-Manuel Miranda, he wrote on Twitter something pretty fascinating. Lin-Manuel Miranda is a, is a playwright. He wrote the musical Hamilton. He actually just finished his run last night. Well, on Twitter, he, he quoted Micah. He quoted Micah 4.4. It says this, Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. This is how he followed it up. He said, I'm not particularly religious, but the notion of a world where everyone feels safe is calling out to me right now. Amen and amen. Jesus is painting a picture. The Sermon on the Mount is a vision of an extraordinary future, a hopeful, bright, right, beautiful future. And we hear that, and I think that we are warmed. We want this to be true. There is a world, he's saying, that we're, where we will be comforted when we mourn, where weakness, not strength, is celebrated, where goodness prevails over evil. There's a world he's telling us where we can have mastery over our sin like lust. Where there is hope for our broken marriages. 
Where we do not have to expend all of our emotional energy attacking and gossiping about our enemies. There is a world where we can speak directly to the God of the universe and he will answer us. There's a world even where we don't have to stress about our money, about our things. He cares for us. That warms my heart. I think it would have warmed their hearts. They would have been astonished. Here's something I want to be true. But they weren't just warm. They weren't just made happy, were they? They they were astonished. Again, this is a a multi-layered, multifaceted word. They didn't just go away clicking their heels. I think that they were also confronted, challenged. Here is a truth that also made them think. It made them reassess what they believed, how they lived. They were not necessarily looking for this, but now that he said it, they can't unhear it. You can imagine how the crowds heard Jesus. He was saying things that they had never heard before. Not only are you imperfect, Jesus says, you're spiritually bankrupt. You should weep over your sin, he said. When he talked about anger, what did he say? He didn't just say, it's a a bad thing, you should try not to do it. No, he said, anger is tantamount to murder. Your lust, what about your lust? It's the same thing as adultery. You've got to get them into check. What about your marriage? You can't give up on it. When things get hard, when happiness fades a little bit, you can't just get out of it. God has put your marriage together. He has done it. You have to to trust God to provide for you. Maybe that was the hardest thing. You can't trust yourself. You can't continue to gather up your wealth and store it away. You have to trust the Lord of the universe. Remember when he said you will be persecuted? Remember that? You will be treated unfairly if you follow me. They're being confronted. They're being told everything about their lives and it's making them uncomfortable. They can't unhear it. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well? She was waiting there and he arrives. She's drawing up water. They have a conversation. And very quickly, he uncovers the truth about her life that she has committed adultery many times. She's living with a man who's not her husband. She runs away from there pretty astonished. And she says to everyone, he told me everything about my life. The Sermon on the Mount, if you will let it, will uncover your life. It will confront us. And we are astonished. We are warm, we're confronted, and I think we are a little terrified. We are a little terrified. There's no getting around this. If you take, take the teachings of Jesus seriously, you cannot be helped. You cannot help but be a little scared. I think that's probably the closest thing that these people felt at the time. What do I do with this? What do I do with this teaching that is so authoritative, so strong? that is speaking to my heart, that I want to be true, but doesn't really feel true. And then he said, at the very end, what did he say? You have to choose. We did this last week. It's not 
many choices. It's two choices. There is a, a good gate, a narrow gate and road. But there is a wide gate, a bad gate and road. And he says one will lead to salvation and the other will lead to hell. And you cannot hear that and not be a little scared. Especially when he talks about how the people came to him. The people who came to him with all of their goodness, all of their good works. And he says, even those who say, Lord, Lord, to me at the end of time, they will not get in. And then you just take the whole thing. You take all of the Sermon on the Mount and you're terrified because he's calling you to a new life, isn't he? He's not just asking you to change one part here, one part there. He's asking you to be perfect. Peter says that later. Be perfect as your holy Father is perfect. And this this means that you must give everything you have for Him. You must trust Him completely. You must walk through that narrow gate and walk that painful path. That is terrifying. C.S. Lewis says it dramatically. He talks about it like it's going, it's kind of like going to the dentist. He says that when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And, I, and the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin. But I also know, I also knew she would give me something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist in the morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting much more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists, I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. And then he describes it and connects it to this. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin, which they are ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, if you go to him, he will cure it all right. But he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me in, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourselves in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. The crowds sat, mouths agape, astonished, explicante at his teaching. How about you? Last point this morning. The truth is about him. The truth is him. Matthew seven twenty eight. whole thing this time. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
There's an old story. It's probably apocryphal. probably really didn't happen, but I love it. So I'm going to tell it like it happened. It's about Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield. You know who Benjamin Franklin was, one of our founding fathers? If you don't know who George Whitfield was, he was a famous British preacher, maybe the greatest of all time. He'd come from the UK over here. He's actually buried in Newburyport. Fascinating. Benjamin Franklin would go to see George Whitfield preach. Whitfield would gather thousands of people. People would gather to hear him, flock to hear him preach the word of God in these open-air settings. Benjamin Franklin went over and over again. Well, someone grabbed Benjamin Franklin and said, why do you keep on going to hear George Whitfield preach? You don't believe anything he says. To which Franklin reportedly replied, Yes, but he does. There is something captivating about a person who really believes what they say. But no one died for George Whitfield. There is no religion of GW. Something different about Jesus. He was not just captivating. He did not just believe what he had to say. But he spoke with authority. That is primarily why they were astonished at him. There's no way they could have walked away remembering everything he said. They were really good at it, but they couldn't have remembered anything. And when they saw him, when they heard him, there was something different. There was something something different about this man. And that is the main point this morning. That is what I want you to hear this morning. We must not only hear what he has to say, but see through it to he the Lord. What we know is that he was authoritative. That's the word that they used to describe. That's the word they used to describe him in comparison to the scribes in the day. And authority in that time meant freedom. Authority meant freedom to choose. Authority meant the right to control. Jesus had this in a way that no one else in the, in the world had. And they were astonished. He spoke as a teacher in a very different way. He was teaching them, but it was not like the scribes. The scribes of that day were kind of like lawyers, if you know anything about the scribes. They were like lawyers. They repeated the law. They argued over the law. But they did not create the law. They did not make the laws. They just took it and argued over it or announced it. Here is the law. So they would say things like, thus says the Lord. Jesus never says that. What does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you. Can you imagine how that would have sounded to an Orthodox Jew at the time? Does he have any idea what he's saying? How can he do this? This is typified when he says that he came, Jesus Christ himself came to fulfill the law. He did not just give the law. He was not like Moses. It was something else, someone else. He was the Lord. He was the author of it. He would complete it. One commentator says it this way, Jesus did not speak by authority, but as the authority. Two, Jesus was a judge. He spoke as a judge. No one else talked this way. At the end of time, after the men and women of the world had gone through either the narrow gate or the wide gate, there's someone who will judge them at the end of time. And he could have said, my father will do it. He could have said, God in heaven will do it. No, he says, I will do it. 
I will be the one standing there at the end of time. I will judge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you hear all those pronouns? This humble carpenter of Nazareth had placed himself at the center of the most important event at the end of time. No one spoke like that. No one spoke as a judge. Jesus spoke as God. Jesus spoke as God. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he is often known for a question that he would ask those who dismiss Jesus out of hand. He would ask them a question about Jesus to, to help them take account for what they really believed about him. He said that Jesus could either be a, a liar or a lunatic or a lord. You, you can understand why that would make sense because you, you have to take everything that he says at, at face value. You can't take one thing and the other. If a relative of you of yours is claiming to be the center of the universe, you don't go, well, he's a really good guy. You don't do that. You say, we got to get this guy to the hospital. He's a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord or maybe he's both of those first things. You have to take that into account. Because many people, how do they see Jesus? They see him as, as a decent person. Someone who loved the world, someone who taught great things. But when you take it all together, something different altogether. And mainly this, Jesus believed that he was God. He saw himself, he told people that he was God incarnate. Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is just a little detail, but I love this. So Jesus says something similar in the Gospel of Luke. And you would expect him in this section, also in Luke, to say, everyone who does not say to me, Lord, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom. And you expect him to say something like, so you should do everything in my name. You should work to serve and honor me. He does that. He says that in in the Luke version. But here he changes it just a little bit. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you hear the shift from the Luke account to the Matthew account? When he said it in Luke, he said, you do my will. Here he says, you do the will of God. To him, they were one in the same. John Stott says it this way. He says, this token of his divine self-consciousness probably just slipped out. How about the Beatitudes? How about the Beatitudes? Listen to verse 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then the next, the next verse he says, you will be persecuted like the prophets were persecuted, like the Old Testament prophets of old were persecuted. That's what's going to come to you if you follow me. Why did the Old Testament pro- prophets receive persecution? Because they were serving God. 
because they were serving the Lord. Jesus says, if you serve me, you will receive the same persecution. He's not out there altogether yet, but he is subtly showing them he is not just some other teacher. He is the Lord, the sovereign Lord of the universe. Jesus was speaking to them as God, and he finishes his Sermon on the Mount, and he stands before them. They are silent. He is silent. It's almost like he's asking them, who do you say that I am? Who knows if they comprehended any of this, at least consciously? Over time, I think as they walked away, as they repeated these sayings back and forth to each other, they would have had to make some sort of choice. They would have had to have decided at some level. They would have had to say, okay, who is this guy? Who is this man? Who speaks this way? He's not just a, a passionate, captivating, knowledgeable guy. No, he's really taking things to another level. I can't just be amazed at him like I am other people. I have to believe him or not. I have to give him my life or not. Either he's crazy or a liar or a lunatic or both. He's something else. John said again, We cannot escape the implication of all this. The claims of Jesus were indeed put forward so naturally, modestly, and indirectly that many people never even notice them. But they are there. We cannot ignore them and still retain our integrity. Either they are true or Jesus was suffering from what C.S. Lewis called a rampant megalomania. These men and women were astonished. This was not like any other man. This was a teacher not like any other of the scribes. But they did not believe. Astonishment is not belief. Astonishment is, is not giving your life to him. Perhaps they wanted to. Perhaps they, they wanted to give their life to this guy. They, they, he painted a picture so beautiful and so good that they wanted to believe, but they couldn't do it. Their hearts were too hard. Their sins too great. They could not really see him. And so Jesus, he wouldn't just leave it at that, would he? He would astonish them again. He would go and die for them. He would rise from the dead to give them new eyes. My favorite example of this is Peter. Oh, Peter. So, Before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was no one who followed Jesus as closely as Peter did. He loved Jesus. He followed him wherever he would go. So one of the first instances of this, actually right after he was called, they're in a boat together. They had gone out into the water, and they're in a boat. And Jesus says, throw your nets out. This was after a whole day of catching nothing. And they're looking at this guy like, This is a carpenter. He doesn't know anything about fishing. And he's telling me to throw my nets in. Well, they do it anyway. And you know what happens? Instantaneously, their net is full of fish and they have trouble bringing the whole thing in. And how does Peter respond? He throws himself at Jesus' feet. He hides himself beneath his hands and he looks at, and he he says up to Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Leave me. Get out of here. Depart from me. He is 
terrified. I think you could say that he was astonished. Well, fast forward a few years, this time after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the disciples are in the boat again, but not with Jesus this time. They're out by themselves. They're trying to gather, gather some food so that they can eat later. Not having any luck. Well, then someone from the shore yells at them. They can't see who it is, but they, he yells at them to throw their net in on the other side. And again, they're like, what is he talking about? But they do it anyway. Why not? And again, their net fills with fish. And this time it almost sinks them. It almost kills them. And what the scriptures say is that at that very moment, they saw who was on the shore. At that very moment, Jesus was revealed to him. Now, what does Peter do? He doesn't crouch down in the boat. He doesn't hide. It says that he puts on his outer garment and he jumps in the water because he cannot get to Jesus fast enough. Something happens when we see Jesus not just out of astonishment, but love. But that is what he did for us at the cross. He gave us eyes to see him as he really is. His resurrection provided us hearts that could love him, cherish him, and honor him. In our dinner for eight meeting last night, we, I, I brought some questions. These are the, I brought the, uh, they call them the four Quaker questions. So it's all around the idea of warmth. You ask where you grew up. You ask the question, what was the heating source when you were a child? And then you ask the question, who and and what was the center of warmth in your life? It's really fascinating listening to how people answer that. The last question is, when did God become warm to you? And how did it happen? And I was listening to all the people talk and some people struggle a little more than others. They didn't think about it. Some people knew right away. But for all of them, it was never just a, a single event. It was never just one thing. Over time, over their lives, Christ became more and more real to them. He became warmer and warmer to them over time. Christ is being revealed to us, to all of us. We still ignore his truth. We still push him away. We don't take it all in. But it's getting better. Maybe you for the first time are just seeing him. You're seeing him on the shore for the first time. Here is not just a good man, but he is the Lord of lords. And you're a little terrified. But your heart is warmed. Do not simply be astonished, but believe. Or maybe you're stuck in second gear. You have been at this a long time. And I would say be patient. Continue to seek the Lord. Christ will slowly warm himself to you. You will warm up to him. Give your life to him. Here's how a hymn puts it. It's this vision. Fill all my vision. Let not of sin shadow the brightness shining within. Let me see only thy blessed face, feasting my soul on thy infinite grace. May that be true for you. May that be true for this church. Let's pray. God, thank you for this astounding word of hope. 
It confronts us. It terrifies us a little bit. But it is ultimately a message of hope. We said at the very beginning that it was an unveiling, that he was giving us a glimpse into what this world was supposed to be like. Before we fell, before we uh, forsake you, forsook you, God, it was supposed to be something different. And through your servant Jesus Christ, your only son, we now know it. We now know the truth. We now know that you must be glorified and that you seek for us to be satisfied. And so we must say at the end of this, none of this will happen apart from your goodness. None of this will happen unless your spirit comes to us, revives us, shows us the way, fills us by himself. And so I pray that. I pray that for those who are just on the precipice. They want to know Jesus. They want his life. They're terrified by it. They're astonished at it, but they want something more. God, enable them to trust you. Enable them to love you. Enable them to surrender their lives to you. And God, for all of us who are on the path, stuck in second gear or third gear, would you push us on through? Give us grace to do that. And I pray that for this church. I pray that we would live this sermon out, that we would live in this vision now. It's not just for the future, it is for now. That is why you gave it to us. May we be a people so enraptured by the grace of Christ that we would long to live for him and to carry these things out. We ask these by your grace. We ask all of this by your mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen.